Hey everybody, this is Mark Thompson, and I'm so delighted to be serving you today with another incredible podcast for the Chief Executive Summit Series. In the work that I do in Chief Executive Coaching, I have the opportunity often to meet the Chief Executive of the United States on both sides of the aisle, from George Bush and Ronald Reagan to President Jimmy Carter, who just moved into hospice. And I did a program with him many years ago in Atlanta when he was talking about being a warrior for peace and the work that he's done to have impact around the world that was recognized with the Nobel Peace Prize. Listen to Jimmy Carter. He was born in the small farming town of Plains, Georgia, and would become the 39th president of the United States. But after Jimmy Carter faced a stunning defeat in the race for a second term, he found that his life's work was not over. In fact, he was just getting started. Today, Jimmy Carter negotiates peace treaties, builds homes for Habitat for Humanity, and monitors elections from Guatemala to China. He has written 15 books, seven of which are bestsellers. With all of these efforts, Jimmy Carter has defined a new type of leadership role in America, the ex-presidency. And with it, he has earned perhaps greater recognition around the world than he did as president. We were invited to meet with Jimmy Carter in Atlanta, where Mark Thompson asked him how the role of leadership has changed in the new century. Well, I think a truism that has always guided me that I learned when I was a school child in Plains, Georgia, was that we have to accommodate changing times but cling to unchanging principles. And I believe that a young American, at least, who is uh, getting ready for an expansive career that would involve leadership, uh, should remember that uh, phrase to accommodate changing times as a result of a new sense of vulnerability in America, a, a sense that we have to reassess some of our basic uh, principles of the past relating to other people, but cling to the things that have made America great, our, our moral values, our spiritual values, our, our political values, the values of, of freedom, of democracy, and I would say of uh, generosity, sharing, flexibility. Those are things that can't ever change, and sometimes we've gotten away from them. And with the explosive events of, uh, of this past September, I think there's been a new realization on Americans young and old that we need to change some of our attitudes toward other people. The Carter Center, for instance, where I work, has programs in 65 nations in the world. And quite often the people there absolutely do not understand the United States of America. And I've come to realize that one of the main reasons is that we do not understand them. And quite often we have zero interest in them and in their plight. We need to understand them and we need to make sure that we uh, go into those countries with a feeling of interest in their lives, but we rarely do. And so I would say that a young person in America should say, I have a foundation in this country that is unequal on earth. I live in a country of security, of wealth, of prestige, of power, of influence. What can I do with it? How can I use that innate or inherited uh, advantage to the benefit of others, the almost inevitable result of which would be to enhance the leadership qualities in my own life. When you think about the role that you've created here at the Carter Center and created really a whole new role for yourself, a leadership role, 
talk about how you came up with this entrepreneurial idea of, of, of remaking what you were planning to do with your life. When I left the White House, I realized that Rosa and I had a lot of influence, having been the president of the greatest nation in the world. And we wanted to know what we could do with it. So our first vision of the Carter Center was to have a, a quiet place here, very similar to Camp David, where people with a, a war going on or the threat of war could come and let me mediate between the two antagonists to give them a prospect for peace. We still haven't forgotten that concept, but it has been expanded tremendously in the last 20 years or so into encompassing, I would say, almost the totality of what a human being is or should be or hopes to be. There's no way to separate, for instance, peace from freedom and democracy and human rights and uh, environmental quality. I think every human on earth has a right to live in peace and to be free and to have a voice in the choice of one's own leaders. And so that's what the Carter Center has uh, come to be. And I think in the process of that, we have been able to put forward and to demonstrate in a practical sense, this is what America stands for. Can you tell us about perhaps a moment about how a leader can balance two very different views, and if you could also comment on what your view of fundamentalism is, because certainly in a crisis, uh, a lot of us can hold to very strongly held views on the one hand. On the other hand, as a leader, we need to see both sides if we're going to be effective. Well, there's no way to mediate or negotiate or orchestrate a free election, or even to recruit a nation's leaders into helping to eradicate a terrible disease without understanding the motivations of those people in countries that are quite foreign to us. So I think the first requisite of successful interrelationship in, in a very difficult or sensitive arena of life is to understand the people with whom you're going to work. And that involves not only the leader who might be the president or the prime minister, but it also involves the people in the local villages who have a problem quite often not even known by the prime minister or the president, but which we learn about. And you run across people who are so deeply um, convinced that they are right that they become obnoxious or even abusive in their convictions. This is a problem with fundamentalism in any religion or in any country <clears throat> because a fundamentalist inherently feels that they cannot be wrong. Secondly, they think they are endowed by God with their convictions. And the next step that's inevitable is that anyone who disagrees with me is wrong. And the next step is, if they are wrong, they are inferior. And the next step, all too often, is if they are that inferior, they are subhuman. And their lives are without worth in my eyes and even in the eyes of God. And that creates the extreme lack of commitment to work harmoniously with people of different views to promote the concepts of life that are inherently important to every human being. If you think about how you have been able to actually get folks to see eye to eye, at the end of the day, what do you think the, the magic is that happens there? There are a few prerequisites. One is the comprehension of what motivates the people involved. Why do they disagree? What do they ultimately hope to achieve? 
maybe quite often, what do the people who look to them for leadership hope to achieve? Or can you present yourself as someone who is trusted by both sides to be fair and honest? Can you propose uh, solutions to complex questions or answers to difficult questions? Can you take a step-by-step -step approach where every time either side makes a concession, they're convinced that that small concession is not as great as the advantage that they achieve? And can you ultimately bring the two sides together so that both of them, at the end, feel that they have won? So I try to capitalize on an innate characteristic of politics, and that is self-delusion. Anyone who runs for office is convinced, anyone, that if the election is honest and fair, and the people know me and know these other jokers, surely they're going to vote for me. So in a troubled case like I've just described, I go to both leaders and I tell them, let the Carter Center guarantee in your country, maybe for the first time in its history, that we can have an honest election. And I'm sure the people of your nation will choose the right person to be their leader. And they remarkably, quite often, let us come in and have the first election in history. So you see, you have to understand what is in a country. You have to understand the leaders and the people under them and their desires. And you have to build up an element of trust and offer them something that they think will help them accomplish their goals. That's uh, some principles of uh, negotiation in a nutshell. If we had the tremendous benefit of bringing back the Founding Fathers here to the Carter Center for, <laughs> let's say, next Fourth of July, for Independence Day, and we had the, the privilege of asking them about leadership and leadership lessons. As a student of government, what are some of the lessons you think they could teach us about Independence Day and about our, our role as Americans today? Well, I have to say that if, if Washington and Madison and Jefferson and Franklin were here, I would certainly be a, a very subordinate student. Listen to these masters of what did you dream about when you established this country? And I would say the first question I would ask them collectively is, how have we failed to realize the dreams that you had 200 years ago? And uh, what do you think we could do to improve? I'm sure they would be amazed that the 13 colonies, which they envisioned then, dominated in power by, by France and England and, and Italy and Spain and Portugal, uh, would someday become the preeminent power on Earth. And I would say, how do you think we could take advantage of this uh, unanticipated element of, uh, of glory? And I am absolutely certain that they would disagree strongly with each other. But I think we could derive from that uh, encounter some truisms and advice that would be beneficial to me as a former president and to other leaders in our country, it would be a great thing. When we talk to people about their personal journey in trying to take a leadership role in their life, their community, their school, a business, we all get caught up and tripped up by obstacles and setbacks. Some of us can't get up afterwards. I've found it's very inspiring to people to hear that successful leaders have had all their share as well along the way. And I was hoping that you could just touch for a moment on your transition from the White House and, and what you found when you came out, and then take that to how you discovered this new 
role of leadership and what was happening inside your feelings in terms of making that, that, those choices? When I was a little boy, I lived in an isolated community. The nearest city had a population of 500. I didn't have any white neighbors. I grew up with just black playmates in an era of uh, total racial segregation and during the Great Depression years when the more affluent people around us who were sharecroppers had an annual income of $75, annual income of $75. And out of that, you know, I have been able to get an education. No one in my family had ever finished high school before and then to become president. And when I left the White House, I was in despair. Uh, I had not anticipated being defeated after the first term. I had put everything I owned, a very successful business and a blind trust. I found that during the four years I was in the White House, I had accumulated a, a debt of a million dollars. I had no way to pay it off. I was gonna move back to Plains, the little village of 500. There were no job opportunities there. And so we decided to found the Carter Center and to use the uh, whatever talents or ability or influence that my wife and I had to get to know the rest of the world and to address the problems of some of the people who had really not been on my top priority or even my medium priority while I was president. When you're president, you have to deal with crises. You, know, with, you deal with the Soviet Union and with China and with the Mideast and so forth. But since then, we've dealt with the 24,000 villages in the world that had guinea worm. Three and a half million cases of guinea worm in 22 countries in the world. And we identified every village in the world that had guinea worm. And we went to every village and taught them what caused it and taught them how to stop it. And so we have now almost totally eradicated guinea worm from the face of the earth. Another disease, rubber blindness. The Carter Center has been given a free medicine by a major pharmaceutical company, Merck. One tablet a year will prevent a person going blind and end the terrible itching and so forth. We have personally delivered that medicine 32 million times. And this is the kind of thing that was devastating the lives of people that I've never heard of when I was president. It sounds like this is what, in a sense, got you up the morning after, because <laughs> that's, that's, that's where we all have, uh, you know, in, in reading everything again, I found it quite inspiring because we all suffer with trying to deal with the pain of a big disappointment. And there's this the Chinese proverb, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Yeah, right. And after enlightenment, carry water, chop wood. <laughs> How do you deal with the, the pain of disappointment and, and what really drives you to decide to make a difference? Well, I think everybody has to be prepared in life for failures or disappointments or frustrated dreams or even embarrassments. And we have to be prepared to accommodate them if possible, that you have to accommodate changing times but cling to unchanging principles. And if you do have an extreme change in your life that is unpleasant, what are the principles that don't change on which you can build a new life, an expanded life, a better life, a more adventurous life? But I would say in the most dismal times of life to overcome despair and disappointment and failure. Each of us has to struggle in our own individual way to achieve a measurement of uh, success. But I would say that every created human being can be successful. Whether you are live in 
abject poverty or have any other defect in life, you can espouse the measurements of success. Justice, peace, humility, service, forgiveness, compassion, love. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.